from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. It's an age-old debate and one that gets traction every four years. Should we scrap the Electoral College? Critics say it is outdated, undemocratic, and that we should elect presidents by popular vote. But supporters contend it is a critical part of the Constitution and that the framers knew what they were doing. As we enter the last stretch of Election 2020, we'll take another look at the Electoral College and prospects for changing it. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. After ballots are cast, the spotlight turns to the Electoral College and its 538 electors. Unlike other elections in the United States, the presidency is decided not directly by voters, but by members of the Electoral College who are assigned based on the results of the popular vote in each state. In this hour, we break down the role of the Electoral College and take up the ongoing debate over its relevance. Joining us is Bertrand Ross, Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law, and welcome to the program. Great. Thanks. To be, it's great to be here. Good to have you. And also good to have Jesse Wegman with us this morning, a member of the New York Times editorial board and author of Let the People Pick the President, the case for abolishing the Electoral College. Welcome, Jesse Wegman. Thanks so much for having me. Good to have you as well. And later on, we'll be talking with Tara Ross, author of Why We Need the Electoral College. So we'll be hearing both sides. Let me begin, actually, with you, Jesse Wegman. We might as well hear the side of abolition first. And I'm going to ask you also to kind of lay out some of the primer notions of the Electoral College. But in terms of uh, what's presently in place, you've only got two states, Maine and Nebraska, that don't choose by the uh, number of um, winner-take-all. I mean, here in California, for example, which is for the most part uh, considered a blue state, millions of votes by Republicans just become invisible. In Texas, which is largely a red state, if it goes Republican, the millions of votes of Democrats largely go completely invisible. That's it, isn't it? I mean, I'm really glad that you started with that because that is what I would highlight about the fundamental uh, distortions that are caused by the way the Electoral College functions today. You know, I mean, people talk a lot about small states and big states and who has more power. And really, it comes down to what you just said, which is that winner take all law, which all but two states use, is what uh, basically erases tens of millions of Americans votes, both Republicans and Democrats, every four years, no matter who wins the White House. Uh, it can also lead to a popular vote loser winning the presidency, as we've seen twice in the last 20 years. But that's really the, that's really the fundamental problem here. And it's the thing that can change. And that's the other key point is that these winner take all laws are not in the Constitution. The Constitution's framers didn't even talk about them. You know, so when people say defend the Electoral College because it's what the framers designed and it's so brilliant. In fact, the framers never talked about the way the Electoral College functions today. And when they saw the winner take all laws being adopted in the early years of the Republic, they were horrified. James Madison tried to actually uh, pass a constitutional amendment barring their use. So they really, they, they never were contemplated at the founding and the way they function today is by far the most distorting aspect of the Electoral College. In fact, we know that about James Madison because it was in a letter back in 1823, but there's also the sense of, uh, 
Abolition requiring a three-quarters majority of the House and Senate or approval of two-thirds of the state legislatures uh, and then ratification of 38 of 50 states, that's a big get, but you're on your way. You talk about essentially the compact that you have going. Sure. It's not mine. I, I, I do write about it, though, at length in the book. It's, uh, it was started about 15 years ago by a computer scientist in, in California who figured out, you know, he understood uh, that these winner-take-all laws are at the core of the distortion. And so he said, well, wait a minute. States can decide however they like to award their electors, right? They, it's their choice. The federal government has no role in it. So what if instead of awarding their electors to the winner of their state vote, which as you just said, erases millions of Republicans in California and Democrats in Texas repeated that all over the country. What if instead states awarded their electors to the winner of the most votes in all 50 states combined? And if states representing a majority of electoral votes agree to do this, you do the math, you put those two things together, and you guarantee that whoever wins the most votes in the entire country becomes the president. And that essentially eliminates this problem of these battleground states and awarding all, you know, electors to one side or the other. You get the entire country involved and you force the candidates of both political parties to pay attention to the entire country. Well, and let me go to you, Professor Ross, because right now there is on the ballot in Colorado something that's quite relevant to what we're talking about. Can you spell that out for our listeners? Yeah, there's a popular initiative in Colorado um, on whether to stay in the compact. Colorado, the legislature and the governor decided to join the compact um, several years, a few years back. And um, an initiative was put on the ballot, um, giving the people the choice as to whether they wanted to stay in the compact. And I think this is interesting because it suggests that there is um, some degree of opposition in the state. The fact that this initiative was able to get to the, get onto the ballot with respect to the compact concerns I've heard from Coloradans and is that you know um, staying in the compact and having the compact come into effect when enough states join would diminish the influence of Colorado on elections, would diminish the the the, the number of visits that they get from presidential candidates during campaigns. So there's kind of self-interested motivations behind um, this um, um, folks who, who desire that Colorado leave the compact. Um, right now, um, it's polling in a way that suggests it, 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 it might pass, although there's very limited polling on this. Um, but it's interesting to, to see how that's playing out in Colorado. This is Proposition 113 in Colorado, for those of you interested in those kind of details. Uh, let me go to you, Professor Ross, on what has become a major focus of discussion in either supporting the Electoral College or and defending it on the one hand, or being in favor of abolition, as Jesse Wegman is. And that gets down to the idea that the Electoral College uh, essentially on race and slavery uh, and its history is tied to slavery uh, has been part of what we would now describe as systemic racism. How do you see it? Yeah, so there are three main reasons for the Electoral College system at the founding. Um, first was the framers' desire for an independent executive. The common practice at the time in the states was to elect the presidents for state legislatures to um, select the elect uh, to to, um, to select their governors. Um, and the framers wanted a great, a more independent executive. There's also a fear of too much democracy. The economic elite that were the framers feared the popular masses voting. But there's a final reason for the construction of electoral college system, which was to accommodate slavery. Now, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, there were many more free people in the North than the South. As a result, a system of popular elections would diminish the influence that Southern states would have over the election of the president, since they had many more slaves who could not vote. So James Madison, a leading framer of the Constitution from the state of Virginia, which had a considerable slave population, 
was one of the proponents of the electoral college system. Now, the electoral college system favors the South more than the popular election of the president because of the three-fifths clause of the of in Article One of the Constitution. And according to this clause, slaves count as counted as three-fifths of a person for purposes of apportioning seats in the House of Representatives, which ultimately meant that slaves count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of calculating the electoral college votes of a state. So although slaves could not vote, the fact that they were nonetheless counted for population purposes meant that the more slaves the state had, the more influence it would have over the election of the president. Now, the immediate result, as Yale law professor Akil Amar has found, was that after the 1800 census, Virginia had 20% more electoral college votes than Pennsylvania, despite having 10% fewer free people. And the longer term impact until the Civil War was that Southern slave states had disproportionate influence over the election of presidents, which resulted in the election of a series of presidents in the 19th century who were sympathetic to the demands of Southern states to preserve the institution of slavery. So that's kind we of the background in terms of the slavery implications of the electoral college system. Yeah, and, and you've outlined it very well. I'm just also uh, struck by the fact that uh, three times in history, of course, the popular vote exceeded the electoral votes, or I should say the electoral votes uh, won the day as opposed to the popular vote. And we go back to 1876, the Tilden Hayes controversy, Rutherford B. Hayes became president, but uh, there was a compromise and the compromise essentially removed troops from the South to maintain order. And it also uh, uh, removed those troops which were protecting black voters. Is that not the case? That, that is the case. And it's, it's because of that contest in the 1876 election that we ended Reconstruction, that um, we had the rise of the Redemption South um, that led to decades of Jim Crow and subordination and segregation on the basis of race. So there's kind of that link in terms of the election of presidents and the system that was set up and, you know, this historical subordination of racial minorities in our country, um, you know, that for which we're seeing the legacies persist today. A legacy which uh, really didn't uh, get to some extent uh, ameliorated until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, again, Bertrand Ross is Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law, and Jesse Wegman is a member of the New York Times editorial board and author of Let the People Pick the President, the case for abolishing the Electoral College. Let me uh, uh, bring out the, the uh, journalist in you, if I may, Jesse Wegman, uh, and just have you explain to listeners what goes on here, because uh, when they vote for president and vice president, they're really voting for electors. So let's take it from there and, and talk about the process and how things unfold, if you would. Sure. Um, so I guess here's the simplest way to put it, which is electors are partisan actors who are chosen in each state by the parties that are running. So the Democratic Party gets its number of electors for that state, uh, and the Republican Party gets its number of electors for that state, um, and it's the same number. It's based on their representation in Congress. So California has the most in the country, right? It's the biggest state in the country, so it gets 55 uh, electoral votes, 53 for its House of Representatives members, plus two for its senators. The people who are chosen are just regular citizens like you and me who have a connection to somebody in local or state politics. And the, you know, they literally, they get a phone call early in 2020 and say, hey, you wanna be an elector uh, for the, the presidency uh, in, in California? And the person says, sure. And that's, that's pretty much it. Um, and then uh, what happens is states decide, you know, we were just talking a minute ago that states can choose how to award their electors. They do it most, almost all do it by winner take all. The other decision that states get to make is how to pick their electors in the first place. Um, we all assume today that the electoral college means that you know we, the people, vote for these electors who then cast their ballots 
by winner take all for, for the presidential race. In fact, that's not the case. We, we are at the mercy of our state legislators. It's state lawmakers who decide whether the regular people can have any role at all in picking the president. Uh, in fact, for many of the early years of the Republic, the, the, the states chose the electors themselves with no input from the people. And they could do that any time today. Uh, and, and it would be entirely constitutional. They don't do that because I think they, for 150 years now, it hasn't been done. And I think people would revolt if they said, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to have a vote for president. So uh, we assume that that is a natural part of the Electoral College. In fact, it's not, it's, it's, it's purely a decision uh, by state lawmakers. So we vote, the, the state lawmakers, uh, we, we vote for the electors and then the electors uh, vote in a winner take all fashion in all but two states for uh, whoever gets the most votes in that state. And, and that's coming really up it. on a break here. So I just want to get in the fact that uh, there is a timeline here. By December 8th, there's a so-called safe harbor date where each state chooses a uh, final slate of electors. And by December 14th, the electors uh, are actually going into the college, so to speak, what is called the Electoral College. And uh, the delegations are meeting. And it's not until January 6th that the president's actually decided in a formal way. We're going to continue with this discussion. We want to hear from you. Is it time to get rid of the Electoral College? And if you're in favor of keeping it, tell us why. As I said, we'll hear from Tara Ross later, who is in favor of keeping it. You can join us now, and I invite you to do that at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the Electoral College with Bertrand Ross, who is Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law, and Jesse Wegman, who is a member of the New York Times editorial board and author of Let the People Pick the President, the case for abolishing the Electoral College. And Professor Ross, if I can just go back to you for a second. I'm interested in a constitutional matter before we start hearing from our listeners uh, and something that um, really needs to be explained with your expertise. That is, uh, legislators... Uh, who constitutionally get to choose the electors, but then there's a governor who um, can disagree, and that's not necessarily uh, clear constitutionally, is it? Yeah, it's, it's not clear, and that's one of the um, concerns about this particular election. It's, it's a concern that's not likely to arise, but it could arise. And the Constitution gives the legislature broad authority with respect to the selection of electors that will be sent to the Electoral College that will be counted for purposes of the president's presidential election. Now, the problem could arise in the case in which the, um, the votes on Election Day, for example, are trending a certain direction and presidential candidates such as President Trump declares himself the victor. And Republicans who control the legislature in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, in a sense, go along with this declaration and seek to delegitimize votes that are counted after Election Day or seek to delegitimize a certain number of votes that would um, tilt the election in favor of Trump. But once the, uh, all the votes are counted, we find that actually Biden has won one of those states and the governor seeks to certify a slate of electors that will go in favor of Biden to the Electoral College. That could raise a, 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 a challenge because it's, it's happened very rarely in which a state has sent two slate of electors to Congress. Um, and if it were to happen, there are no clear means for resolving this controversy, given that um, Congress is currently divided. Now, that 
may change after the election in which the Senate um, goes to the Democrats and that could help to resolve the situation. But there could be a situation in which two sets of electors are sent to the Electoral College um, and, and, and there has to be some re resolution in Congress with respect to this dispute. Um, and so that's kind of one of the challenges that we're, we're, we're facing. It's, it's, it's not likely again, but it's possible. Well, it's also, I think, important to note that President Trump and conservatives have supported popular vote. Uh, in fact, uh, President Trump at one point before the 2016 election actually called for the abolition uh, of the uh, Electoral College, which he said was a disaster to democracy. But let me bring on a caller, and TJ is our first caller. TJ, you're up. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, not to sound too jaded and apropos of the most recent comments, I have, I'm, of course, in, in favor of abolishing the Electoral College for the reasons that your guests and you have mentioned. Um, the question, of course, is where is the political will or capital on either side of the aisle in Congress to actually make it happen? I'm guessing that the president's tune uh, would have changed since he did not win the uh, political, uh, sorry, the popular vote in 2016. Well, I thank you for that call. We don't know <laughs> about what the president's tune would have been, but we have had, certainly historically, and it's worth noting, uh, twice uh, in the Gore v. Bush uh, Supreme Court decided election and also in the election uh, more recently in 2016 between uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, President Trump, where the popular vote did not coincide with the electoral votes. Uh, let me read some comments that are coming in. Uh, Vince writes, uh, are there any realistic scenarios where the popular vote elects the president with or without the Electoral College? And why would the currently overrepresented states agree to have their power lessened? Go right to you on that, Jesse Wegman. Uh, I'm really glad uh, that the callers and uh, listeners are asking these questions. Um, you know, the, the, this idea that uh, there is no political will to change the system is, it, it feels like uh, just fact of life today because of what you just said, that twice in the last 20 years we've had this both times the same party has benefited. So it feels sort of intractably partisan. But in fact, uh, when you look back at the full scope of American history, there have been roughly 800 attempts in Congress to amend or abolish the Electoral College. This is far more than for any other single provision of the Constitution. And those attempts have come from all over the political spectrum, precisely because people at throughout American history have understood how the Electoral College as it functions is actually doesn't really uh, it can it can gore their ox at any time, uh, too. So, you know, in 1968, 1969, in a story that I tell in my book, uh, there was actually an incredibly uh, powerful effort to abolish the Electoral College through a constitutional amendment. Um, Eighty percent of Americans supported a popular vote. Top Republicans included Richard Nixon when he was when he had just been elected president, George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole, you know, sort of not backbenchers. And uh, it failed because of, as I think Professor Ross very rightly said, the, the role of Southern segregationist senators who filibustered the bill uh, all the way until it died. Uh, it had been passed in the House of Representatives uh, overwhelmingly, and yet it died in the, in the Senate. So again, we see this sort of racial subjugation playing a role in how we elect the president and the history of, of slavery and the history of the uh, discrimination against Black people in particular. Uh, but I really do think as soon as people understand that the Electoral College can turn around and bite them, they don't like it. That's why Donald Trump called it a disaster for democracy in 2012. And I guarantee you, if Texas, 
where to vote for the Democrat, right? If a majority of Texans choose a Democrat and all 38 of Texas Texan electors go to the Democrat, Republicans are suddenly going to change their tune too, because there is no way for a Republican to win the White House right now without Texas. We should mention, however, that uh, early on in American history, there were a couple of legislators, Rufus King of Massachusetts and uh, uh, William Patterson of New Jersey, who, along with James Madison, uh, felt that it was important to abolish the Electoral College. But nevertheless, uh, uh, and and they were opposed to slavery, I should mention, uh, but they endorsed the electors concept. uh, And that even was true going up to recent history, Vernon Jordan, for example, was head of the Urban League, I think, was against abolishing the Electoral College, wasn't he? Well, that's a really interesting story, right? So that what I just told you was how it was Southern segregationists who drove the filibuster that killed the, the uh, amendment in 1969-1970. They were joined by uh, the NAACP and Black voters and political leaders in the North for a, a an interesting reason, which is that uh, the North, and particularly states like New York, was, New York was the biggest swing state in the country in, in the mid-20th century. And how New York swung often decided the election. And Black voters and ethnic, uh, ethnic minorities in the big cities decided how New York was going to swing. So they also had an outsized power in the Electoral College, thanks to the winner-take-all law. So they didn't want to give up that. Nobody wants to give up power that they have, whether or not it's, you know, ill-gotten. So, you know, Black voters in the North were defensive of their extra power in the Electoral College, just like the Southern segregationists were. And in the end, you know, they kill the bill for, for self-interested reasons. But, you know, everybody else loses as a result. Well, I want to bring Tara Ross in, but before I do, I want to hear from a caller, Brian, who supports the Electoral College. And Brian, welcome. Let's hear from you. Hi. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's an important conversation. Um, as I understand it, the Electoral College is there to protect the interests of states, and we are a federal system that allowed states, the original 13 colonies, to come together in an agreement that they were going to fight against the tyranny of a king. And without the Electoral College, those states can lose power, which is the foundation of our system to, I mean, on a moral level, it's to allow areas that otherwise would be disenfranchised. We like that term, franchise and disenfranchise, do we not? It would disenfranchise states that are smaller, so we come together as a union because we, uh, we, we create in our system, our constitution, the means to allow for the sharing of power different from how Athenian democracy works, where it's a majority rule. If we go with the majority rule concept, then we shouldn't have a Bill of Rights because the Bill of Rights gets in the way of the majority should it one day decide X. Uh, and then the Constitution steps in and, and says, well, you need two-thirds majority. That's, that's a violation of majority rule. We don't say that's wrong, though. So right, I get, I, I, you, your argument is really a cornerstone of one of the arguments in favor of uh, the Electoral College. Like I said, I want to hear from Tara Ross, but let me first hear from you, Jesse Wegman, in response to Brian's call. Uh, you know, I mean, I hear this a lot, and this is a variation of the argument we're a republic, not a democracy, which I just think misconstrues the term. So, you know, re- you know, invoking Athenian democracy is is really inapposite because 
we are not a direct democracy on the national level. We never have been and we never will be. We are a representative democracy. Electing the president by a popular vote does not turn us into a direct democracy where majorities win all the time. We still have the Senate. We still have the Supreme Court. You know, we are electing a representative. We are not passing laws as the Athenians did directly, uh, you know, or as say town meetings in New England do. We are electing a representative and that representative is being hired to represent all Americans equally, regardless of where they live. That's what the argument is for why that person should be elected by all Americans equally, no matter where they live. All right, I want to bring Tara Ross into this discussion. She's the author of Why We Need the Electoral College and a book called The Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule. And let's go right to the heart of your titles there. Tara Ross, first let me welcome you. Glad to have you aboard. Thanks for having me. Um, so why is it indispensable and why does it save us from mob rule? <laughs> well, the reason that the Electoral College is important in a country like America is because we are so large and so diverse there's so many different interests, so many different perspectives, so many different ways of life, really, um, across this great land of ours. And if we were to implement a national popular vote system, um, as, as some people are arguing for, some of those perspectives would get lost and would never have a voice in the presidential election system ever again. So that's the, the big reason is to maintain diversity and not to ignore, for example, smaller rural areas or smaller states or anything, but to have a kind of equity? Is that what you're saying, basically? Well, some of it's about small states, certainly. But, um, you know, some of it's just about different subcultures, the different industries, you know, farmers versus people who live in big cities, the different ways of life that are, are that, that we all experience across America. If we had a national popular vote system, then the candidates would be tempted just to aim their their campaigns and their their um, their policies at the areas and the parts of the country where there are the most people. Um, you know, 2016, we have a lot of emotions about that, but we can look at an election like 1888, which where Grover Cleveland won the popular vote. He lost the electoral college vote. Um, but the reason that he won the popular vote was because he had won huge landslide victories in six Southern states. He won 72% of the vote there. If he had been allowed to win that presidential election, he would have been selected, handpicked by six southern states, regardless of what the rest of the country thought. So, I mean, I would argue that this is not a good system. Um, a national popular vote would not be a good system because it would create a world where the, the incentives are just go to the part of the country that's already familiar with you, that already likes you, that's already predisposed to be on your side and, and give them anything they want and, and cater to them. And, um, you know, I think the president is the only person in the whole United States that is expected to represent such a huge diversity of us. There is no other elected office in this country where that is true. Uh, you know, others, a senator might represent a state or a congressman might represent a congressional district, but the president has to represent absolutely everybody. Aren't you also saying that when you have an electoral college, it's, uh, it's harder to steal an election? It's absolutely harder to steal an election. Now, I'm not going to say impossible. Don't hear me say impossible, but it's absolutely harder for sure. And the reason that it's harder to steal an election with the Electoral College is because of the decentralized nature of the system. Um, with, with the Electoral College, you need several things to come together all at once if you want to steal an election. First, you need the national popular vote to be close, close enough that swinging one or two states will make a difference. Second, you need a couple of states holding the right number of electors to also be close. 
so that you can swing those states and make a difference. But third of all, you need to be able to predict in advance which states would, would qualify and what would, what would work. In 2000, there's nobody that knew that a few hundred stolen votes in Florida would make a difference. Um, you can contrast that with a, a, an election year like 2004, where people suspected that Ohio would be the, the problematic state. And in fact, it probably was. But what happened there is that every, I mean, poll watchers, lawyers from all across the country descended upon the state. Everybody knew which part of the country to watch. And so we narrowed down the, the scope of what we had to take care of. Now contrast that with the national popular vote system where any stolen vote anywhere in the country, you know, the bluest blue California, the reddest red Texas precinct, any vote stolen anywhere matters. So in a national popular vote election, you have to literally guard every single precinct across the country with equal attention, which is impossible. So the electoral college at least narrows it down to a smaller subset of problematic areas. And it is possible to watch those areas more carefully. And again, I'm not gonna say it's impossible. I wish I could wave a magic wand to make that happen. But at least you make it as hard as possible and you throw up a lot of hurdles. Well, I'm going to bring in some more of our listeners. Uh, let me go to a caller named Lewis next. Lewis, join us. Thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Hi, I just have a quick question for uh, both of our uh, both of the guests. Um, I wanted to kind of ask if what their opinions were on how the electoral politics plays a role into the polarization that we're seeing in the country and kind of this um, what I see as kind of a tyranny of the minority that I feel has happened in the past 20 to 30 years. Um, and that's all. I'll let that one hang. Lewis, you may want to hear from both, and uh, I certainly do. But I'm going to go first to Professor Ross, because uh, he's our uh, he's our scholar here. Uh, can I get you to weigh in on this, Bertrand Ross? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think that when you think about polarization, one of the things that I'm concerned about with going to a national popular vote system is that, is that it might, in fact, exacerbate polarization in our politics. Now, as we know, the Electoral College system forces presidential candidates to focus their attention on so-called battleground or swing states. And these states are closely contested states that swing one way or another, depending on the election, and moderate or independent voters are usually the pivotal voters in these states. As a result, in the conventional election, we see both Republicans and Democrats veer towards the center after the primaries to try to secure the support of these moderates or independents in battleground states. But to persuade, reach, and mobilize independent voters who tend not to be as engaged in politics as base voters, Candidates have to spend money to knock on their doors, call them on the phone, or have allies or surrogates do so. And so when the narrow electoral map is narrowed to battleground states, candidates in high-spending presidential elections can afford to make the efforts to reach these voters while also mobilizing their base. And candidates recognizing that their platform and message that appeals to their base might not appeal to moderates usually make the necessary adjustments to how they campaign, which often translates into how they govern. Now, if we a popular election of presidents through a national popular vote compact or something similar, the electoral map broadens considerably to the nation as a whole. And I get it, that sounds like how it should be, but those billions and billions of dollars that candidates are raising will suddenly be inadequate for the purposes of both persuading and encouraging independent voters and mobilizing their base nationwide. And since it is cheaper to mobilize the base, the incentives would be for candidates to focus their now limited resources on advancing messages and platforms focused on more on mobilizing the base than engaging persuading independents. And what I fear ultimately is that we might see more campaigns and governing like Donald Trump and George W. Than, than like George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and potentially Joe Biden, and more campaigns focused on the, the the base rather than the moderate middle. 
So that's a concern with respect to the polarization aspects that the caller um, has described that I have with the national popular vote system. And I'll certainly want to maybe hear from Jesse Wegman on that, but we're coming up on a break and I want to read a couple of comments first, some emails coming in. Curtis writes, the weighting of the number of electors isn't perfect, but the Electoral College is effective in keeping small states from losing state sovereignty. A bigger problem is redistricting by Republicans to gain the majority in state legislatures and congressional districts. And Jeff writes, could it be a good idea to keep it? Can the Electoral College overrule the popular vote in case there is a real fraud? And Craig writes, uh, we should get rid of the Electoral College, replace it with a simple popular vote. In order to offset the feeling of irrelevance by less populated states, there should be a random draw that will determine the schedule for when states would hold their primaries. That way, smaller states have a chance to host the presidential primaries at much earlier dates than what is now the schedule. And again, you may want to weigh in here. And if you do, uh, let us know by Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. And phone lines uh, are at 866-733-6786. Talking to Virtual Ross, Jesse Wegman, and Tara Ross. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the Electoral College, and we're talking with Tara Ross, author of Why We Need the Electoral College, and Jesse Wegman, whose book is called Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College, and Bertrand Ross, the Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law. Jesse Wegman, I wanted to go to you on this whole question of polarization, since uh, Professor Ross kind of took the pro-East uh, elect Electoral College position. Tell us uh, about polarization and abolition, if you would. Sure. You know, I, I'll, I'll say this just first of all, I think it's important to kind of remember this as a sort of broader framing of this debate, which is that in the presidential elections, states don't have a, a, a voice. They don't have an identity. You know, people who make up the states have the voice and the identity. So as we've as you said at the top of the hour, you know, California uh, had four and a half million votes for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, all of those votes were essentially erased in December when the electors cast their ballots by winner take all. So, you know, people don't vote because of the state they live in. They don't choose for the Democrat or the Republican because of the state they live in. They vote the way they do because they support one party or the other, wherever they live in the country. And I think that's the, that's the way our, our presidential election needs to be run and reflected. With regard to this question of moderation, I, I, I guess I, I wasn't quite clear on the professor's point because he was saying that, you know, uh, the Electoral College forces um, candidates to reach out more broadly and not just cling to their base. And yet Donald Trump, who won only because of the Electoral College and who, if he wins again tomorrow, will have won only because of the Electoral College again, is the ultimate in sort of base appeal and refusal to reach out. And that's because it's actually an effective approach for him right now is to do that. I spoke to uh, dozens of campaign managers, field directors, you know, ground game coordinators for both Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns over the last 25 years in my book. And I asked them, well, what would change if you had to run a campaign uh, under the national popular vote rather than under the Electoral College winner take all system? And they told me, you know, one of the great benefits of it would be more moderation. And that's because when people vote and they, and they see that their vote doesn't matter, which is true for, I would say, 80% of American voters who don't live in battleground states, they are less likely to turn out and vote. And a lower turnout election means, by definition, a more extreme election. The, the, the base on both sides is more motivated to vote. When more people vote, 
you get a more moderate outcome. So I actually think to the contrary, it's the national popular vote that would both moderate our politics and make people see that the country is much more politically diverse than it looks like from our sort of, you know, artificial red and blue state distinctions. Well, we become kind of swing state America. I was thinking about the fact uh, that the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, which is uh, crucial in this election, because it is such a swing state, uh, could come down to fracking in terms of deciding whether uh, it's going to be Joe Biden, uh, the vice president, who's a candidate, or President Trump, who's a candidate. But let me go back, if I may, to you on this. Uh, and, and Tara Russ, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, but I'm also interested in getting a reaction from you on race, which we talked about earlier, because, uh, for example, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that um, essentially the She's described the Electoral College as affirmative action for rural voters. Uh, their votes are weighed more over voters of color. Um, I'd like you to address that because, again, we get back to this argument that the Electoral College embodies a kind of shadow of slavery's power and the relic of slavery, and it came out of a pro-slavery co compromise, and therefore it's at the heart of systemic racism. Um, sure, I can address the race thing. I don't want to miss the polarization point that also but i just completely agree with everything that's been said about this just being a relic of slavery etc the, the the presidential election process was created because at the constitutional convention there was a divide not between slave states and not slave states or slave owners and non-slave owners but because there was a divide between large and small states and the large and small state delegates disagreed on how to proceed. And if you read the notes of the convention, what you see over and over again is the large states and the small states lining up against each other on this issue. The large states, by the way, the delegates, some of them were slave owners, some of them weren't. On the small states, some of them were slave owners, some of them weren't. And it just over and over again, there were, there were two main ideas on the table. One was legislative selection. So imagine Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell trying to iron out who's elected this year. Or the other idea on the table was a national popular vote, like we talk about. Congressional selection of the president could not make any headway because there was concern about separation of powers and really wanting the presidential, um, the president to be independent and to be his own person and to not be too dependent on the legislature. They were very worried about that. The national popular vote proposal was opposed by many small state delegates because they felt like they would be outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens in the large states small state delegate and slavery opponent, Gunning Bedford Jr. from Delaware, he, he summarized this feeling when he looked at the convention room and said, I do not trust you, gentlemen. If you have the power, the abuse of it could not be checked and you would exercise it to our destruction. And they felt very strongly, they were very afraid. And so at the end of the day, the Electoral College, when it was created, it was meant to be a balance between the, the large states and the small states. How do you create a country that is self-governing, where the voice of the people is reflected in the office of the president, but it's not just the voice of the people in the large states. <laughs> it's the voice of everybody. And, and that is what is at the root uh, of the Electoral College. And, and I mean, that, that's just it. To go back to the polarization issue, um, look, this is the way I see it. We are in a period of time, in my opinion, that looks a lot like the years after the Civil War. Back then also, anger, division. There were two elections where the winner of the electoral college vote did not match the winner of the popular vote. Um, there were there was a, electoral maps that just looked the same over and over again. But what happened is the electoral college helped us to get out of that place because it is a moderating influence. I, I, I agree with what Professor Ross said about it being a coalition building device. And in those years after the Civil War, 
that's what happened. Democrats in the South did not have enough electoral votes in their safe areas to to win the White House. They just simply couldn't do it. They had to reach a hand across the political aisle. They had to figure out what drove voters that weren't quite like themselves. They had to figure out what are the similarities that bring us together as Americans. Likewise, the Republicans, with their safe areas largely in the North and Northwest, they didn't. They had enough safe electors, I guess, but just barely. And if they lost any to the Democrats, then they were gonna. They were, you know, out of luck. So they too had incentives to try to to not stay stuck in that place. And so by the early 1900s, we had Calvin Coolidge and FDR winning in landslides. And it's because of the Electoral College in large part and because of those coalition building devices. So I would look, I would say today, yes, it's broken, it's divided, it's angry. I don't like it. None of us like it. But if we get rid of the Electoral College, we will have removed one of the few coalition building devices in our presidential election system. And we can just expect to stay stuck in this angry place forever. All right, let me bring Bertrand Ross back into this discussion. And uh, Professor Ross, I want to uh, get your response to uh, some listener comments that are coming in by tweets and by emails. Let me first read a comment that's very strongly against the Electoral College. This is from a listener who says, um, the Founding Fathers didn't consider that women would vote, that slaves would be freed and vote, and that we would live in a time where information is rapidly and freely accessible. There's absolutely no reason to hold on to this 230-year-old anachronism. And a couple of listeners want to know about Puerto Rico and D.C. Uh, Eric tweets, does a na- and I'll go to you on this, Professor Ross, does the National Popular Vote Compact re- remain in place if the Electoral College is expanded? My understanding is that it doesn't, and should Puerto Rico and D.C. be added as states, the compacts passed elsewhere will be invalidated. Now, I'm going to hitch that on to another listener question about, uh, uh, I'll read it from a listener who asks, if we got rid of the Electoral College, would votes from D.C. and territories such as Puerto Rico have more sway in elections since their votes would then count? Can go back to you? Yeah, so just on the point in terms of the compact being invalidated, right? the compact will not really go into effect unless there is a majority of electoral college votes. Uh, states representing a majority of electoral college votes join the compact. So there are laws that states have passed um, saying that they will join the compact under this condition. Um, this condition has not yet been achieved. I'm not aware of any uh, of, of laws suggesting that the compact would be invalidated um, to the extent that you add more states, they would be not valid or in effect if there's not a majority of electoral college votes represented in those states. Now, with respect to DC and, and Puerto Rico, right, the, um, the, uh, the national popular vote, um, to the extent that it, 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 it would come into play if you kind of expanded beyond the national popular vote compact, you know, the relevance of their votes, um, DC would probably have a lot more um, influence over the election because the number of people that they have would be, um, would, would out, outstrip sort of the number of electoral college votes that they have assigned to them. Um, Puerto Rico is a complicated case because it turns on whether they choose to um, choose statehood. And that's something that is disputed right now and is a controversy right now in Puerto Rico. And they're trying to decide that question. And it has to come from the other side, whether the United States wants to add them as a state if the Puerto Ricans decide that they choose statehood. So that sort of complicated factor um, influences um, how these the, the electoral college system might impact the states and how those states or how those potential states might influence the ultimate um, election of the president under the two systems. And again, Bertrand Ross is Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law. Let me read a few more comments because there are a lot of them coming in. Uh, this is Todd who writes, the vote of each Californian is worth a fraction of that in states across the country who are more than happy to spend our tax money. California should demand a federal tax cut proportional to our voting representation. 
Another listener writes, this is usually a fantasy topic because no one will ever get ratification by three-quarters of the states to eliminate the Electoral College. Small states would be committing elective suicide. And Will writes, the Electoral College is another vestige of slavery that has no place in 21st century America. Let me bring another caller aboard, and that's you, Margaret. Join us. You're on the air. Yes, thank you for having me, and thank you for having this uh, particular program. Um, 200 and some years ago, the people who founded this country and its uh, way of governing had, a, from Europe, a hierarchical mindset. And so, as you alluded to much earlier, we are kind of stuck with it. The Electoral College is one more step in the steps between the people and the governance. As you know, um, the Electoral College people can change their votes at any time. They promise, but they don't have to keep their promises, and so they can do what they want. The, ele- the direct vote tells the whole nation who the whole nation wants for president. The All right, College. Margaret, I thank you for that call. It's good to hear from you. I'm just wondering uh, about... And let me go to you on this, if I may, uh, Jesse Wegman. What would be the political realities of changing or, for that matter, abolishing the Electoral College? What do you envision? Well, uh, this, I, was, I was getting at some of this uh, in my earlier answer about how it would increase moderation. Um, but I, I do think it would increase turnout. Uh, we see it right now. You see in the swing states where people know that their vote matters, right? And that the person who wins the most votes in that state is going to win all the electors in that state. There is consistently and significantly higher turnout in those states than there is in safe states. It just makes sense, right? If you know your vote matters, you're more likely to come out and vote. And if you know your vote doesn't matter, you're less likely to come out and vote. So I think turnout and political and public participation in our government uh, is one of the big things that goes up. I think another really important uh, improvement is uh, legitimacy, right? Democratic legitimacy. I think we run every election in the country by a majority rule, except for this one. And I think when people feel like the person who runs the country did not actually receive the support of the most voters, it really dents that person's legitimacy in the eyes of the voters. And that's a real problem for a representative democracy in the 21st century. Uh, As the caller said, you know, our founders came out of different traditions and they uh, had different expectations about who was gonna be included in the American polity. But today, for the, you know, basically (laughs) only for the last few decades, we have had an election in which all eligible adults with a few very small exceptions, all eligible adults, Uh, All adults, I'm sorry, over 18 are eligible to vote. And that means that we are a country in which all eligible adults should be able to vote and should count the same in the election. So I I think that when you switch to a popular vote, I I, I actually, there's a lot that I disagree with in in, uh, what uh, Tara Ross has said, um, both factually and and analytically. And there are some points I would like to also disagree with about uh, what Professor Ross has said. Um, I don't don't think you have time for us to get back to all those things. But the bottom line really is that when you have an election for a person who has to run the entire country, treating all people equally, those people should be able to vote for the president in that way. Well, I'm going to read a couple comments and I'm going to go back to Tara Ross. Uh, John says, I think it's a real shame that it always comes down to two or three swing states that decide our president. Makes me feel as if my vote doesn't count and we may as well just hold the election in half a dozen swing states. And Alex writes, the pro argument is among the weakest I've ever heard. As a Californian, 
I am disenfranchised no matter how I vote because a vote in Wyoming holds much more weight than mine. We must go to a national popular election to force candidates to make their cases to all voters. And you say what to that, Tara Ross? Well, several things. One is I, I push back on this notion that there, it, the only states that matter are swing states. The difference between safe states and swing states is that safe states made up their minds earlier in the process. Swing states just take, took longer to decide, but every state is important. And by the way, every state can change its mind. And historically, there is no such thing as a permanently safe or permanently swing state. This year, people are talking about Texas. Texas going purple. Well, I thought I thought Texas was supposed to be a safe red state that just didn't matter. I guess that's not true. This year, all of our focus is on Pennsylvania. Why aren't we talking about Ohio? What happened to Ohio? We used to talk about Ohio all the time. And in fact, if you look at the history of states voting, what you see is that safe states are just states that are pretty happy with one of the parties already. They don't feel ignored by the party. They are happy with the party. And that's why they haven't changed their vote in a while. And when they stop being happy, they get everybody's attention very quickly, as several blue wall states did in 2016, as West Virginia did in 2000, when it switched from safe blue to, to safe red ever since, as Utah did for the Republican Party four years ago, when they were so unhappy with both candidates that they threatened to vote third party. And in fact, Mike Pence was dispatched to a safe little red state in the closing days of the campaign, because guess what? Utah matters. And once Republicans saw that Utah was feeling ignored, they knew they had to act on it. And historically, if you look through the system and through our history, that's what you see. The right, candidates I've only got a couple that minutes are, left. I want to give, sure. I want to give uh, uh, Jesse Wegman an opportunity to respond. Jesse Wegman. I mean, I, I, I don't know where to begin. The fact that, that battleground states change over time does not change the fact that when there's only a few of them, the candidates focus all of their attention on those states. You know, it is not, states don't have minds of their own. States aren't happy or sad. They're filled with millions of people, some of whom vote for the Democrats, some who vote for the Republican. That's what should matter in the election. I just, I, I don't see how an election can be run for a country of 330 million people when candidates are focusing on just a few thousand in a few swing counties around the country. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't map. Well, let me just read another listener comment that confirms what you just said. One of our listeners writes, the arguments for the Electoral College are wrong on their face. The supporters of the Electoral College want to preserve a system with disproportionate weight for the smaller states. It's inherently unfair. They're just trying to preserve their disproportionate power. And Randy says, I'm just as concerned with what would replace the Electoral College if the result is that only a plurality is required to elect the president. It's not much of a reform. We need to implement something like the ranked choice voting we have in cities across the country to allow new perspectives a fair chance to enter the system. And interestingly enough, I'm getting a number of comments here that I see that uh, I want to highlight ranked choice, at least as a... Uh, uh, as a substitution. And uh, Steve writes, the solution is simple. Eliminate the winner-take-all system. Every state allocates their electoral votes by congressional district, as does Nebraska and Maine. More votes will be counted, keeps the Electoral College intact, and still provides an advantage to small states. And one more from Ned, who says, efforts to dismantle the Electoral College seem to be in line with the Democrat Party's desire to democratize the federal government, which would go against the spirit of the Constitution. The reason we're called the United States of America is so that the diversity of the country could flourish without being overrun by one single central authority. The Electoral College helps keep that integrity of diversity intact, particularly in an age of ever-expanding federal government. Let me thank our guests. Glad to have had 
all of you with us. Thanks to Tara Ross and Jesse Wegman and Bertrand uh, Ross. And thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. And an hour is repeated 10 to 11 in the evening. Stay tuned for an hour with me and Kim. And thank you for being here. And stay safe. I'm Michael Krasner. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.